Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bejen. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Before we get into today's topic, we have a very exciting announcement to make. Beginning Friday, October 22nd, we'll have a Patreon page. That's right. Another podcast with the Patreon page that no one asked for, but we're doing it anyway. Listen, friends, we've got we've got bills to pay. We got a podcast to host. We've got some marketing. You know, we're trying to send this podcast to college, all right? And you can't do it alone. It takes a literal village. California schools are very expensive. And competitive. (laughs) Very competitive. And we want to and we got to Photoshop this little podcast face onto a crew member to we, and some rowing photos we if we want, want her to get somewhere. We want our podcast to have a proctor to take the SAT on their behalf. So, <laughs> Wouldn't we all pay for a proctor if we could? <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. I don't blame Felicity Huffman here. Neither do I. I mean, like, who's to say <laughs> what we would or would not do with a bunch of money? Who knows? Who knows? But we're very excited to announce this. Um, we'll be bringing you lots of fun content, including bonus episodes, newsletters, other things that will make it your worthwhile. Anything you want to add, Margot, to this? Yeah, it's going to be two pieces of content a month. It's going to be one bonus episode, and we're definitely going to be covering stuff that is more contemporary, but obviously still has some overlap with what we talk about on the main show. I guess we got to got to start getting used to saying the main show now the main show. and then we'll have another bonus piece of content at some point throughout the month and that could maybe be a newsletter or it could be a review of a movie or it could be film commentary um it'll also be like a fun place to chat in the comments since you know there's not really like a super interactive way i guess like on instagram but it's very post specific there so yeah i think we're excited to launch a low maintenance Patreon and we hope that you guys sign up for it. <laughs> the- and we are also open to 
suggestions for bonus content, but there will definitely be, and we'll still do mini episodes on the main feed, but there will be additional, you know, after dark kind of (laughs) Patreon bonus episodes. I, did I tell you that I had to explain OnlyFans to somebody who also didn't know what Patreon was and that was extremely tricky? That sounds very tricky, but I was going to say, you mentioned low maintenance earlier and I want to tell you where I am today. Uh, When you said low maintenance, immediately I was like, so it's like the balayage of media. (laughs) Like (laughs) you only have to do it every six months. (laughs) <laughs> except we have to produce like two things that's true. once that's true. a month that's true. That's but true. you know we'll have one tier it'll be five bucks or slightly less and we just hope that you join patreon and we can't wait to see you guys over there and we've got some fun stuff that we're launching with and also some halloween related stuff since yes tis the season. season so yeah, that's we're excited. That is an adequate pitch. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so head on over. We'll be posting about it on our Instagram. So uh, you'll have all the links there. And we're just oh right. The other thing that we were talking about, which is uh, having an episode or a written format of us talking about the celeb memoirs. Yes, that yes, we yes, want to yes. talk about because um, I think that really ties in nicely to who we're talking about today. Because talk about a celeb memoir. Yes, I want to add to cart oh, immediately. Immediately, of course, the stories, the Aunt Viv controversies? Absolutely. I don't know if I actually really give a shit about that. There's so there just based on that GQ deep dive alone. I'm like, fine, it worked. I want to read the book now. Yep. Congratulations. Yes. Excellent. Even though I don't like who wrote the book with him, I think the subtle art of not giving a fuck is a really paint by numbers like it's literally that episode of family guy where brian's like i could write a fucking self-help book and he yeah. does it because massively massively successful that's that guy who wrote it like that's i can't unsee so, it <laughs> as we're as we are talking about crossing over into our new content and new ventures i think we have a nice segue into today's episode's topic a man who is one of the biggest crossover stars of all time so much so that the incredulousness people felt around him going from music to TV and then movies was literally a plot point around how Ben Affleck loses his job in the movie Jersey Girl. <laughs> I'm, of course, talking about Will Smith. Do you remember this in Will- in Jersey Girl, by the way? No, I don't at all. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. After J-Lo, his wife, has died while giving birth to their daughter. Spoiler! Uh, <laughs> 20 years too late. <laughs> 17, maybe 17 years too late. You don't anyway. know who was saving that for their personal bad movie night. Their Kevin Smith bad movie night. Well, it's funny that you bring up Kevin Smith because I know. he will come up later in Wiki Wow Wow West. That, I mean, he certainly does. Oh no my one God. had a stranglehold on the late 90s the way Will Smith and his assorted, <clears throat> I feel like almost his music. Like the second yes. I put on Getting Jiggy with it, I was like, Wow, this has been unmatched. Like, I think the closest it's come has been Little Nas X, honestly. Little Nas X, yes. But other than that, I'm like, who else has, like, this catchy, this short of a song, too? That's short, yeah. Creative sampling. I mean. Yep, yep. And, like, just makes its way into everything. Everything. That that Big Willie impact. (laughs) As the 90s came to a close and the dawn of the new millennium came, excuse me, uh, Willennium came upon us. Will Smith had the most insane career out there. He starts his hip-hop career in the 80s with the Fresh Prince and DJ Jazzy Jeff and has a fair amount of success. Then he goes on to have a hit simcom in the early 90s, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which ran from 1990 to 96. 
And then he moves into huge action films, which back then, like, you were either a TV actor, you were a movie actor. Like, you didn't get to do both, basically. His streak in the 90s begins with Six Degrees of Separation and Bad Boys. Then he goes into Independence Day, Men in Black, Enemy of the State, and then takes a slight nosedive with Wild Wild West, which I should note still made $222 million worldwide. But during this string of film hits, he also released his first solo album, Big Willie Style, in 1997, which sold 6 million albums, and then followed it with Millennium, which sold 4.3 million copies worldwide. Will Smith basically wrote the book on how to be a successful crossover star. Will Smith walked so Dwayne Johnson could run. Before we get into it, Margo, what's your favorite Will Smith movie and song? Hmm. Okay. I think it's pretty easy. It's Men in Black. That is just canon Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. It is one of his funniest movies, I think. It holds up really well. David Cross cameo. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I think my favorite Will Smith song. Hmm. I think it's Miami, unironically. <laughs> no, I, I, it's, it's a strong contender for me, too. I, I would say um, Men in Black is my is my favorite movie. I was about to say Wild Wild West, which is not my favorite, favorite Will Smith movie. It was just the most recent clip you watched. <laughs> yes, of the very haunting leak. <laughs> so, oh, my God. My God. And then my favorite song, I would say, is Getting Jiggy With It. But I would say Miami is a strong, you know, second contender. That one's a lot of fun. Well, in doing research for this, I went back and listened to Big Willie Style and yep. Willennium, like, back to back. And it, honestly, Big Willie Style is a stronger album. Oh, for sure. And I mean, honestly, the interludes between songs were killing me. They're also, like, they have the lowest plays. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's just, like, Miami's, like, 300 million and then interlude is, <laughs> it's like, 5,000. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's such a steep drop. But... I I've also I think this just really speaks to Will Smith and it's like in my you know at the top like assorted thoughts from doing research for this episode but I feel like there's a reason why the Will Smith list sequels of Men in Black and Independence Day which we're both going to be talking about totally suffered without him because he is such a unique on-screen charm and charisma that's completely unmatched and yeah. you can't just slot a Hemsworth it Hemsworth in either situation. I mean, even Tessa Thompson, as gorgeous as she is, cannot save this movie by herself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that it really sort of speaks to, I mean, his uniqueness. Like they call him like one of like the last movie stars. Like him and Tom Cruise are on their names alone. You can open a fucking dud like Wild Wild West and still make over two hundred million dollars. No, I would agree. I mean, you just don't. Apart from like these days, that kind of money, like you know, you have Dwayne the Rock Johnson, but really, you don't have to keep inserting the Rock. You can either just call him the Rock or Dwayne Dwayne. Johnson. You don't need to do (laughs) the Dwayne Johnson earlier. I just. I mean, you're giving him like the Jennifer Love Hewitt treatment right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think this most recent um, bout of press for him because he's promoting King Richard, which looks incredible. Looks great. I think really kind of resurfaces why you really love Will Smith, because the last couple of movies I've seen him in like Bright and Gemini Man, I think did not capitalize on his true gift as like an actor, which is just letting him, I wouldn't say be himself, but 
letting him add like a little like his like Will Smithness to stuff. And I feel like Gemini Man was so like the technology was cool, to, like see him fight Fresh Prince Will, but I you know it you could not be sustained on that for two and a half hours. And Bright was like such a fucking shit show, and the whole sort of you know, message it was trying to deliver was so clumsily done by that shithead director. So it's sometimes it can be hard when you have a bunch of, I wouldn't say flops, but like disappointments to forget yes. like what makes you like the movie well, star that you, you essentially are. You bring up a really good point with Will Smith is that he is great when he gets to do his thing and he's fantastic. His weak points are is when he is put into a position where he has a terrible producer or director at the helms of the movie. And I say this, that he is certainly not the only person who suffers from this. There are plenty of other people who would be in the same position. Um, but it definitely comes up in like Wild Wild West with uh, with the producer. And like it comes up with, with oh, that Oh, right. Movie. That fucking psycho oh who was like married to Pam Andrew. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you did. About him. Because you, every single his story. story Margo, his origin story. Oh, no. I know his origin story because I had to look it up after he'd married Pam Anderson for like two days or whatever. I was like, who's oh this God. guy? He made – because it also happened around A Star is Born. I was like – and he's trying to claim credit for yeah. – the current stars born with Bradley Cooper, and they're like, "You have nothing it's, to fucking do with us, you psycho." Anyway, he's God. one of those like Hollywood types that you think is made up, but you're like, "Oh, this is who Tom Cruise based his character on in Tropic Thunder." Like, oh, that clearly. level. John Peters, like this man. I'm telling you, I'm watching the Nicolas Cage Superman documentary after this. That's what <laughs> I'm doing. My sick ass tonight is going to be watching the Superman doc. Yeah, I definitely think that he I wouldn't say that he ever suffered from like bad producers, Will Smith, but he uh, or it's more like executives and like studio people, because obviously Wild yeah. West was like re-edited by by committee, essentially, yeah. with like audience test scores. And that really dinged it. In addition to having a complete lunatic. Oh, my God. Behind the scenes. <laughs> behind the scenes. Telling these. Could you imagine as a writer having someone being like, yeah, motorcycles are cool in the 1800s. And you just have yeah. to fucking let's, write it. <laughs> let's get a mechanical spider up in there. Let's I make mean, that my producer trademark. Like, I, like I mean, first spiders. of all, oh, hilarious producer trademark. <laughs> and I kind of like low-key stan, but... <laughs> <laughs> but like at a certain point it's just I, I don't even know like you're just exacerbated by the whole you're just like i don't okay yeah i'll give you your fucking mechanical spider the script will no longer be my problem in about eight weeks so well but your your crazy is forever <laughs> luckily for will smith uh this was a mere blip on his uh very otherwise very good career truly wild um, that is something truly. like this didn't further derail him again a testament to his charm yes. and charisma absolutely. and foresight and sheer determination absolutely and that career really starts with independence day which was released in 90, 1996 and directed by roland emmerich emmerich's best known for a ton of action disaster movies from the 90s 2000s you know stargate godzilla the patriot day after tomorrow and that Independence Day sequel that Will Smith wasn't a part of because they couldn't afford $50 million. And also, it just wasn't very good. And now they won't have any of the other sequels. Did you watch it? I uh, watched part of it and was like, Ehh. I mean, it was, you know, it's not bad. They're like much worse action movies out there. But it's just, I mean, when you you make a sequel to a movie that was so tied to a star and you don't include said star in said sequel, it is very difficult to recover, no matter how wonderful other people can be. Yeah. 
The film was written by Emmerich and Dean Devlin. Devlin's known for writing, co-writing, producing a lot of the Emmerich uh, movies, Stargate, Godzilla, Patriot. He also produced Eight-Legged Freaks, which I was a part of like a test committee or like a, not a test committee, but they were doing, for whatever reason, the DC area, they were doing testing at a local Tower Records on one of the trailers. And like they had like a marketing group, Ask Me, young woman on the street, I think it was like in high school and I was with my mom. And they asked me what I thought of the eight-legged freaks trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially that, yeah, that's my eight-legged freak story. The movie came together super quickly. So this is the interesting thing about Independence Day for like how much of an epic it is and how long these types of shoots usually take. This is the bonkers timeline. And I'm going to break it down to you, Marco. Emmerich and Devlin come up with the idea for this movie when they're doing press junkets for Stargate. And one of the reporters is like, yo, do you really believe that the aliens built the pyramids? And they're like, no, but they're like, but wouldn't that make for a great movie? And then Emmerich, <laughs> Emmerich tells Devlin aside, like, yo, I think we've got our idea for the next movie. And then they found out that Mars Attacks was coming out the following year in August of 1996. And that's Tim Burton's movie, uh, which I actually rewatched very recently for the first time in a really long time. But they were like, we got to get this movie out there in July of 96. Like it has to happen. If we're going to do this, it's going to be a month before Mars attacks. So they go to Mexico as, <laughs> as one does and had a three week to four week writer's retreat where like Devlin's in one room typing up the script. And then Emmerich is like in the other room storyboarding everything out on index cards. And I they can got just <laughs> hear the cocaine being yes. done. This is what I thought. Headphones. Cocaine is one hell of a drug. <laughs> I mean, is. it's it's how you power through a four-week writer's retreat. All of that is in air quotes. Yes. <laughs> My voice power, wasn't implying it. Power through. Yes, yes, yes. So basically, they come back from Mexico and they offer up the script. They just, you know, send it out. And within a day, they get offers. <laughs> they just get nine studios are like, we want to, we want this movie. And then they settle on Fox uh, with like a $69.5 million budget. Three days later, they begin pre-production. So let's recap, shall we? Summer of, you know, summer, fall 94, they're doing uh, the junkets for Stargate. They write this movie in three to four weeks. And then within a few days, just sell off the script and begin (laughs) pre-production. So then they'll begin filming in July of 1995, but start pre-production a few months earlier. And in terms of the casting, uh, the one person they always had in mind was obviously was Jeff Goldblum for that character because it's very Jeff Goldblum. Um, And then as for Captain Steve Hiller, Will Smith's role, they had thought about casting Ethan Hawke. But as Hawke has basically said in interviews, he turned it down because he was a bit of a pretentious asshole post-Reality Bites, which checks out considering that character in Reality Bites. Um, he got a copy of the script and was reading it with a friend on a road trip and thought the dialogue was so bad that he literally threw it out the window on a Texas highway. And he talked about this on Conan O'Brien and like said, like a year later, I was with a girlfriend at the time, saw the movie and was like, wow, I really fucked up. (laughs) But I thought that was a really funny story. So the other person they had in mind was Will Smith. Fox was against it because Smith had yet to prove himself as a leading man role. He did Bad Boys and uh, Six Degrees of Separation, but hadn't really been kind of the leading guy. Um, And because people are racist, and in particular, international markets are racist, they were worried that he wouldn't have been bankable on the international market front. 
Emmerich really fought for Smith and he was eventually cast. And one fun fact about Devlin and Emmerich, they got basically all creative control for this movie. They negotiated that into their contracts, which is why I think Independence Day like stands the test of time and Wild Wild West, which had none of those kinds of negotiations as a shit show um, for various other reasons. But one of those reasons is that. Other interesting casting story, they also wanted to make the president more of a villain with a twist who was kind of like heroic at the last minute. And so Devlin wanted to cast Kevin Spacey, who he had known since high school and who had just seen um, in a rough cut of The Usual Suspects. Ultimately, he decided to go with the good guy portrayal and cast Bill Pullman, which like totally does a better job. Like one, we everything we know is Spacey, like what the fuck, but also like Bill Pullman is a great president in a movie. So filming began in 95 in July. Principal photography ended in November of 95. And then the film itself, once editing, reshoots, what have you, were done, was not completed until June 20th of 1996, just a few days before the premiere. Fox went ham on this marketing budget and basically wrote the script, no pun intended, on how to do a summer blockbuster marketing campaign. They did the $1.3 million Super Bowl ad in early 96, which every summer blockbuster now does. They had a ton of product placement, promotional ads with Apple, Coke, Molson Coors, a line of tie-in toys. They did the works. The film originally had its premiere in the Man Plaza Theater in LA. Do you know the Man Plaza Theater? It says it's defunct. Man Plaza Theater? Um, I don't know. I Anyway. I, I If I saw it, probably... Because uh, at first I thought you meant like Grauman's Chinese Theater. I'm that's like, what that's, I thought. Too. That's no, still yeah. there. Yeah, it's very I mean, I had to ask more questions like, where is it exactly? And that kind of stuff. I'll check later. <laughs> okay. Um, it was screened privately for Bill Clinton and his family at the White House um, and then was released on July 2nd, 1996, a day earlier than its previously scheduled opening because it's one when the same the same day the film story begins in the plot and because it was highly anticipated. It ended up grossing over $800 million worldwide, becoming the highest grossing film of 1996. And this was the year Twister and Mission Impossible came out. And it was the second highest grossing film ever behind Jurassic Park at that point. And this is pre-Titanic, obviously. It would win an Oscar for Best Visual Effects and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sound. And that is all I really have to say about Independence Day because there are no, there's no Will Smith Independence Day song, unfortunately. But there should have been. There should have been, and it seems like they righted the ship by the time we get to the Men in Black, because here they come. They won't let you remember. (laughs) So by the time Men in Black rolls around, Will Smith has firmly established himself as the king of Fourth of July. He initially didn't think he needed Men in Black because he'd already done the cop thing, bad boys, and the alien thing, Independence Day. Because Men in Black was in development for a really long time, as a lot of sci-fi movies are, there was a lot of speculative fiction on how Smith not taking the movie, how that would affect his career as Men in Black is essentially canon to Smith's career if you're a millennial. But initially, Smith turned down playing Agent J, but then Steven Spielberg called him. Amblin Entertainment was on board to produce, and Spielberg convinced Smith to agree to take the role. Smith has gone on to say in interviews, that Spielberg told him, quote, don't use your brain on this one, use mine. Because of his trust in Spielberg's ability and track record, Smith agreed to take on the role in Men in Black. Funnily enough, it was Spielberg who also convinced Tommy Lee Jones to take the part of Agent K. So I guess we all owe Steven a big ol' thank you. But Smith wasn't the only actor being eyed for the role. 
This, I mean, I'm, I'm like imagining this movie with this person cast. I know the story. Yeah. Yeah. They were talking to friend star David Schwimmer and offered it to him, but he turned it down because of scheduling conflict, which like, what the fuck any shit? That guy has the personality of a wet blanket. Meanwhile, he did six days, seven nights. Uh. Oh, I remember where he gets cheated on by Anne. Oh, I almost said Anne Hathaway. <laughs> and uh, uh, Harrison Ford. Ford and his little silver earring. I just remember the silver earring when he's like steering the plane. I'm like, that is so distracting. It's like glinting. In, there's a story in this around that earring. Lighting. Did you know oh. there's a story? Do you what want me it? to share the story? Yeah, okay. quickly. So I'll be quick. Um, Harrison Ford was having lunch with Ed Bradley and I believe Jimmy Buffett or like one other older man with an earring. Ed Bradley was a host on 60 Minutes for many years and they all had earrings and Harrison Ford was like, yo, why don't I have an earring? They're like, you should get one. And that's why he got one. He was with like his friends and he was just, <laughs> yeah, that's I can't story. believe a bunch of these middle-aged men convinced each other that getting an earring was cool. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the other what the fuck casting that could have been was Chris O'Donnell, fresh off of Batman Forever. Um, I guess that was the studio's choice. But director Barry Sonnenfeld deliberately put them off because he really, really wanted Will Smith. It's very hard. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. To see Tommy Lee Jones having the same kind of on-screen chemistry with fucking Ross or Robin. Just another instance of Smith's irrepressible charm and humor being the perfect foil to Jones's gruff straight man. I think most likely... What would have happened if they didn't convince Smith to take the role is that no matter who they would have put in it, it just wouldn't have been as big of a hit and there would have been zero sequels. Men in Black ended up being a massive hit, though, both box office and critically. It grossed $590 million on a $90 million budget and was the third highest grossing film in 1997 behind Titanic and Lost World Jurassic Park, which one of those is an Amblin Entertainment production. Men in Black was also nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Art Direction, Best Makeup, and Best Original Score. And speaking of the score, we obviously cannot not talk about the song Men in Black. It was Smith's first solo success and co-writing credit without DJ Jazzy Jeff, and it sold over 3 million copies and reached number nine on the Hot 200 and went certified platinum nine times over. Smith's debut album, Big Willie Style, which was released just a few months after the film came out, The theme song won Smith a Grammy for Best Solo Rap Performance and cemented him as a bona fide double threat, a movie star, and a rapper. The third single from the album, Getting Jiggy With It, became Smith's first Billboard Hot 100, and it went number one in 1998. And honestly, that's all that I have for Men in Black, other than the whole reason why we get Wicked Wild Wild West is because Will Smith said yes to doing Men in Black. It's... 
mind-boggling how it's this like revisionist history of like if he just would have said no if he just took the matrix if he just I but know. he didn't you know this is yeah. the timeline that we are in and there is another timeline where will smith is neo and val kilmer is morpheus <laughs> my god <laughs> have you watched the val kilmer documentary yet by the way no because i'm afraid it's gonna bum me out i know i know because he apparently it's like mostly narrated by his son so it's like his son speaks most of his like what he wants to say because now he speaks with like a voice box but right yeah well um, look i watched uh we gave you all the policeman clues uh the snowman and he was in that and i was like is that it was one of those things where like he was the way that they they lit him throughout the movie and his voice was like is that val kilmer and i could not tell until the end credits and and then all of the news came out about his throat and stuff so yeah, I was just like, I don't know. I just would rather watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and like live in the good old days. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, what 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 more to say really is other than what happens when Will Smith decides to work with Barry Sonnenfeld again and thinks, gee, it worked out with Men in Black. Maybe it'll work out again. I mean, they literally tried to recopy the success of I Men know. in Black all I over know. again with Wicked Wild. Wild Wild West. I mean, it's honestly, just, they should have just stopped at the music video. It's I like I said in my notes, Wild Wild West. I mean, wow, wow, wow. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wow, Will Smith. Wow. <laughs> this movie is a perfect example of a lot of good people with great talent coming together and making that is something that is just not good. <laughs> This film was released in 1999 and was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who, as you mentioned earlier, is responsible for Men in Black, but also directed the Addams Family movies from the early 90s, which are great. Get Shorty, which is a lot of fun. And also, weirdly, one of the first DVDs my family had in our house for some reason. Get Um, Shorty? (laughs) Get Shorty. It's uh, with like Danny DeVito. Shorty is. I was just clarifying that that was the first DVD in your familial home. I don't know why. Well, again, just like you could not escape getting jiggy with it, you also could not escape a copy of Get Shorty. I feel like they were in hotels and everywhere, like, beach everywhere. homes, everywhere, a all the time. Constant rotation. If it I was just family, like those, yeah. those AOL discs, they were just oh my god, everywhere. Out. I mean, you could have made a coaster out of Get Shorty TV. <laughs> I'm sure some enterprising college student did. This movie was from the get-go in development hell for many years. It began in 1992 when Warner Brothers optioned the rights to the 60s TV show The Wild Wild West, and over the years it would go through several directors, writers, and actors. The original film script was penned by Shane Black and was set to be directed by Richard Donner, who left the production to direct yet another film adaptation of a Western TV show, Maverick. Sonnenfeld would later get to be director which excited him because he had grown up watching the show. But from a writing standpoint, the script, much like Coyote Ugly's script, had multiple versions. <laughs> In 1997, Warner Brothers hired Brent Maddock and Steve Wilson to do a rewrite. The duo met with Sonnenfeld, who was also producing, along with one of the producers, John Peters, who, fun fact, has been Barbara Streisand's hairdresser um and at one point and later parlayed that into a career of becoming a producer one more john peters fact that we mentioned earlier was that he is one of pamela anderson's ex-husbands and they were married for a total of 12 days peter is most notoriously known from a career standpoint as the producer behind the ill-fated superman movie in the 90s that was going to star nicholas cage and originally be directed by tim burton 
Kevin Smith was brought on board in 1997, and Smith has mentioned in interviews that John Peters demanded three things from Kevin Smith in his Superman movie. He says, one, Superman doesn't wear his suit. Two, Superman doesn't fly. And three, Peters wanted the third act of the film to include a fight between Superman and a giant spider. This, of course, never happened because the movie was never made. But two years later, there was, in fact, a mechanical spider in the final act of Wild Wild West. And while this spider was apparently Maddox and Wilson's idea when they were doing the rewrite as a proposed alternative to Peters wearing a wanting a stealth bomber, Peters also proposed to Neil Gaiman that they have a mechanical spider in the movie The Sandman. So a producer's trademark, certainly one of the stranger ones that I've heard of in my day. Anyway, enough spiders. Based on all accounts, John Peters is a big reason why all the bad choices were made in this movie, um, including obviously the aforementioned spiders, but also having Will Smith be in drag. Like Barry Sonnenfeld has said in an interview that he was very much against this and thought it was super belittling. Uh, but at the time, Peters was like a big yeller and like was had a lot of power over Sonnenfeld. And so Sonnenfeld felt like he said in these interviews, like if this had been a movie he was doing nowadays, he would have walked off the set at this point, but like just felt like he was kind of tied to this production. It was already a terrible movie. And so when it went through those initial screenings with test audiences, Warner Brothers allegedly spent 20 to $40 million to change things up in rewrites, reshoots, etc. Essentially, no one really knows who wrote the final script because there are four people who are credited. And despite all this, though, Smith apparently was a trooper throughout the production and was super professional. And I think that bloods itself nicely into what you have some info on, which is the casting. Yes. Yeah. Is there any movie more universally clowned on than Wicked Wild Wild West? One of the biggest duds of Smith's career and a movie he points at as a major regret. <laughs> I think a quote he said is, we could have done better. That's a direct quote. Basically, it's all very Sonnenfeld's fault. Sonnenfeld got the blank check treatment after all the massive success of Men in Black and obviously wanted to take Will Smith with him. If you want to go back to that revisionist history of if Smith didn't take Men in Black, then he wouldn't have made the biggest flop of his career because then he would have never met Sonnenfeld. His counterpart originally was supposed to be George Clooney, but he pulled out the night before Thanksgiving after he read the second draft because Smith, quote, got all the funny lines. This theme of Will Smith getting all of the funny lines would be a theme that continues on even with yep. Kevin Klein. It had always been Sonnenfeld's intention that Klein would be the straight man to Smith's funny man, again, replicating the formula for Men in Black. It had worked so well for them in the past, but, quote, I never felt that the chemistry between Will and Kevin Klein was similar to the energy and personal chemistry between Will and Tommy Lee Jones, he says, Sonnenfeld. I couldn't convince Kevin as hard as I tried to be the straight man. He wanted to be funny. So with two actors trying to out-funny each other, the film was off to a shaky start. Once the cast was assembled, a read-through took place at a horse ranch in Burbank, and I'm really hoping that it's the Circle K where I used to take horseback riding lessons. <laughs> when Kenneth Branagh arrived, because he plays Arliss Loveless, he had shaved his beard and was talking in the style of his character, so he was using, like, a southern accent. And <laughs> once he committed, he's one of those actors that does not drop oh, he's his character until dvd commentary yes he is shakespeare and like takes it very very seriously anyway one of the brothers executives lorenzo 
uh, D. Bonaventure was so impressed. They're like, oh, we should fire Kenneth Branagh and like cast whoever this guy is. And Sonnenfeld's like, that guy is Kenneth Branagh. So I think we're good. <laughs> I think what's interesting to me about this movie is that they got two major theater trained actors because Kevin Klein is also a theater actor. Like he went to Juilliard. He like. Well, thank you up- so much for bringing that okay. up because yes, yes. apparently Barry Sonnenfeld was fucking with Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh the whole time. There are stories that while they were shooting this movie, he would oftentimes either go up to Kenneth Branagh or go up to Kevin Klein and ask them if they were in a play that he knew the other one was the star in just to fuck with them. And apparently Kevin Klein also is somebody who loves to stay in character. So he took up painting because his character was a painter. And so he would paint in between takes and setups and stuff because also this movie took 100 years to finish anyway. And while he was, he did that to like essentially relax him because he, one of the girls that's like a part of Loveless's gang, I forget which one would, he had asked if like he could paint her. And so they, they struck up a little bit of a chatty conversation and he essentially told her like, yeah, so he's like kind of stressing me out and I thought it was gonna be really fun. And so I'm actually really glad that I'm leaning into painting because it helps me relax. <laughs> which again, like this is very like Mr. Fish out or like Pete Kevin Klein. Like I'm convinced this is just Kevin Klein. He just brings his Kevin Kleinness to characters, and there's there's probably him being the character is what makes the character good. Not that the character is necessarily that amazing. He's he is Mr. Fish Oder to me. Yep. So Will Smith famously turned down the or sorry. Ba- Will Smith famously turned down Neo in favor of playing Jim West. Despite his disappointments of the Wild Wild West, Smith said that he had no regrets about his decision, which is interesting. But he asserts that Keanu Reeves' performance as Neo would have been superior to anything that he could have done himself. And in spite of the bad press that the movie was getting, you can never fault Will Smith for not fully committing. He wore head-to-toe cowboy regalia for the entire promo cycle and the ridiculous music video that was 10 times better than the movie, as my husband calls it, Cisco's Moulin Rouge moment. (laughs) Oh my god, but it's so accurate. Just go to music video and try to unsee it. You can't. I dare you. You can't. That is a part-time Boslerman production if I've ever <laughs> seen one. <laughs> Speaking of that press tour though, there were like three corporate Gulfstream jets for the entire press tour. <laughs> they spent so much money on so this movie. So much money. They like took all the budget um, Warner <laughs> Brothers basically just like took their entire budget and like and, threw like, it. They just basically backed up a dump truck and was like here's a budget and here's do whatever the I money. can't believe they spent that much money on re- reshoots it's why it was like one of the most expensive flops I know it, it still made 200 million dollars but it was still considered a flop by virtue of how long it took and how much it cost so they but, was 170 million dollars that it cost yes total. and then it made 200 yeah. I guess that's not too bad but I guess it's maybe good. it's just not worth the pain of no. all of the production no. I think I think mostly once you get back into reshoots, you're you're essentially in the danger zone. You yes. know, like a studio doesn't like that. Even if you make back the money, they're not happy about it. But they were trying to rip another page out of the Men in Black tour yeah. because they lined up Will Smith's second album to support the release of the movie as he had another theme song mm-hmm. as the single Wild Wild West featuring Drew Hill. Remember Drew Hill? Yeah. And Cool Mo D and Cisco. It topped the Billboard Hot 100, went certified gold, and Millennium eventually would reach number five on the Billboard 200 and was certified double platinum. Will 2K, the second single from the album, reached number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100, and that's because it is inferior to Wild Wild West, which, despite your feelings about the movie, that song 
is a jam. Oh, I don't is. know what to it tell is. you. I was thinking about this earlier. We it's a title tie-in track, and we don't really get much many of those these days, what other than the last Bond time movie. we got that. Bond movies, Bond movies, and oh. snakes on a plane. Oh, you know what? No, I think um, that Emancipation of Harley Quinn. They had like a tie-in song, didn't it? Have like Megan Thee Stallion and like Normani on it. It was wasn't it a good called, song. Was it called the title though? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. And then there was that "Don't Call Me Angel," that terrible song with uh, Ariana and Miley and Lana Del Rey. Oh but, yeah, it was called like maybe it wasn't called Charlie's Angels. Yeah, I mean, it's just like there's still songs from movies. Also, those were bad examples because those were both not great songs. So. Not great songs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wiki Wild Wild West, and then uh, that's like. I feel like that's the last kind of the Willennium's like the last big Will Smith album because there's one that comes out that has that song Switch. Two more come out. Two more come out. Yeah, one that comes out in 2002, and then his last one came out in 2005. He has a single. Like if you look at his Spotify, I didn't listen to the song, but it's just called Will, and it's like him and some rapper that I've never heard of. Okay, but I'm sure I'm just making myself sound older than I am. I think oh, it was Joyner, Lucas, and Will Smith. It was a remix of the song called Will. I don't know. It came out last year. And he has another single called Give It Up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With Nikki Jam. I don't know. Yeah. Also, I've not heard that either. I would just like to point out that uh, Wild Wild West has a Rotten Tomato score of, can you guess, Margo? 17, because I saw that earlier. Oh. Well, <laughs> and they won five Golden Raspberry Awards most of which were collected by Robert Conrad, who played Jim West in the original TV series because he was so angry about this movie. That is petty. Wait, what? How did that happen? The TV show, Wild Wild West. No, I got that. And I know it's the the original. How do you give it to the original actor? So the Golden Raspberries, they just, I guess they invited this man to the Golden Raspberries and they allowed him to accept the Golden Raspberries for the movie Wild Wild West. Uh, I see what you mean. He didn't they weren't awarded to him. He just no, no, accepted no, no. He, the award. He accepted them on behalf of the movie because he thought it was utter shit and was really unhappy with it. Look, I think all around everybody recognizes that this was a mistake and we shouldn't have done it. Like Westworld, this is not. And even, you know, only I'm only talking about the first season of Westworld, really. Yeah. So I, I understand. And I think I don't know. I don't want to say it contributed. It, maybe it did contribute to big, high budget, high concept comedies sort of not really staying a thing after this. Like it started to become diminishing returns. I mean, I think it also kind of has to do with like there are no Will Smiths. I guess you can kind of say that Kevin Hart can possibly open stuff all by himself, but I don't remember his last big hit. I mean, like that he was carrying because like Jumanji is obviously a hit, but that's an ensemble thing. Yeah, I would say like other than Dwayne Johnson, see, I made sure to just good call job, him good Dwayne, job, Johnson, proud of you. Dwayne Johnson. Um, he, I mean, even though, but even Dwayne Johnson, like he'll have a few where he's the star, but they tend to also have a second name on the the credit, right? Like Jason Statham. Jason Statham. <laughs> Hobson Shaw. Great, great spinoff. Yeah, I think that's like, it is, you're absolutely right. Like, I think that here, you're right. He is really a part of kind of like this last group of kind of classic 20th century blockbusters stars that one name alone on top of a marquee will bring you an audience. It's very interesting. Yeah. I think also the success of Willonium really buffered him from 
Yes. Wild Wild West being detrimental. It, it was that. And then it was followed up by Legend of Bagger Vance, which was also a dud, but it maybe did. not. It wasn't as high priced of a dud and as public as of a dud well, as Wild Wild West was. It was a smaller budget. And then also he immediately also goes into Ali after. Yeah. So. And it wasn't Fourth of July weekend, which this was, which is something that he had owned for, yeah. what is it, four years running. Right. Exactly. No, I think it's interesting that he uh, continued the streak. But I also think it's also, it's interesting that he was able to take what had been, you know, a flop in which, you know, we, we say it's a flop. It's still profited. But you know what I mean? Um, and then a few years later, he gets his first Oscar nomination and then follows it up a few years later with yet another one. So I and I, I bet you with King Richard, you know, there's going to be Oscar buzz for sure. Um, oh, yeah. It's being released at peak Oscar bait time. Like it's yeah. holiday. It's like end of November, December, which is exactly when all of the Oscar movies start to get rolled out. And I'm. And they waited, so now you can actually see it in theaters, and I wonder if they'll do, like, a dual release, but probably not. Are the Williams sisters behind it? Like, are they producing it? I don't know if they're producing it, but if you read that GQ article, they reached out to Serena for a comment, my close friend Serena Williams, and (laughs) I realized I said her name as if we are friends. Uh, They reached out to her about what she thought about the movie, because she had she's already watched a cut. I believe she was like present for some of like the festival circuit that it was on. And she essentially gave the project her blessing and said that his portrayal of her father is so spot on. She had to remind herself that she was watching Will Smith and not her dad. And I guess they have a lot in common because I was really surprised by how much he talked about his father in the GQ article and, you know, has a lot of similarities with, Uh, Richard Williams himself and how he drew on a lot of inspiration from his dad who passed away in 2016. But I think he also, I mean, he also says that his dad dying in 2016 has made him feel more comfortable talking more publicly about his dad and, you know, and not just like the sunny stuff. I really enjoyed the GQ piece. I thought it was very interesting, like him being a lifelong people pleaser and coming from an abusive household and that, how that, like you either sort of, if if you come from an abusive household, you either have like a freeze reaction or you have a fawn reaction. It tends to be one of the mm. two. And a fawn is like somebody who also like is a, like at their core is a people pleaser and always wants to just give people exactly what they want. And he talks about how difficult it's been for him to establish boundaries and like keep them. Yeah. And- that It's interesting you bring that up though. You remember when Tiffany Haddish told the story of like when they went on a Groupon thing mm-hmm. to a boat show and like of how course. he but like it you it's interesting you bring up the people pleasing part because even on that he had to be like okay everyone let's just enjoy the show and then after you know I'll stand for pictures or autographs or whatever like there's a little bit of that in that story even for sure and I think he talks about it towards the end of the article about how the interview interviewer had asked him some pretty pointed questions about his relationship with Jada and and he actually instead of he wanted to immediately tell him whatever he thought or his truth or whatever and he paused and was like I actually should talk to my wife and then I'll get back to you and then when he called him back he's like three years ago it would totally pain me to not give you exactly what you want but I think it's for the best that I just sort of like leave it where Mm -hmm. we left it and I'm really sorry that that's unsatisfying but uh the the 
interviewer who has won Pulitzers was just like, yeah, I fully understand. Like, we should respect you having boundaries just because you've made yourself accessible for so long doesn't mean that we get to demand that of you. So I find that to be I find Will Smith's like later career to be very, very interesting. I agree. I agree. Um, Well, as we end this episode, do you have any final thoughts about Will Smith? I'm excited to see this next chapter of his career and like how lucky are we that we get to follow a superstar's career essentially from beginning to end, like Mm. from his rapping duo, which, you know, we were sort of caught the tail end of, but mostly like Fresh Prince. And to just see his evolution and think critically about his career, I think is so fun and fascinating because he isn't problematic, like sort of in the ways that like Tom Cruise is with Scientology. Like we can just enjoy Will Smith and he accepts the criticism and he like takes responsibility for stuff. And he just, I don't know, seems like such a genuinely nice person. And so it's just so it's just been fascinating to like watch his career kind of change and evolve over time. And there's just really nobody else like him. Yeah, no, I would agree. Well, thank you again for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, you can check out our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, Pocket Casts, Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And the best way to stay up to date on our latest episodes is to subscribe to our pod. And while you're hitting that subscribe button, maybe leave us a rating and a review. Additionally, we are on social media. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. And finally, you can find us individually on Twitter. I am at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Marg She Wrote. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.